if you've been here over the past few weeks, you'll know that on occasion we've been looking at the book of Revelation and um, looking at seven messages that Jesus shares to seven different churches. Uh, those seven different churches were somewhere in modern-day Turkey, um, towards the end of the first century, um, and Jesus, prophetically from heaven, is sharing a message to each church in turn. And we've seen how they clearly had relevance back then for each of those churches, but they can have relevance for us uh, today, and that's why they're in the Scripture, and that's why we are, uh, we are looking at them. So let's um, read together from uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, to the church in Sardis. Almost. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars of God, uh, holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we are in these couple of chapters, seven different churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, and they're facing similar challenges. There's a similar kind of background, if you like, to what's going on, and different uh, combinations. Maybe there's a different cocktail or a different blend of three particular challenges that are coming the way of these different churches. One is persecution. So some of these churches in particular are experiencing hostile persecution uh, from Roman authorities and elsewhere as well. So that's pressure, if you like, coming from outside the church to the church. Pressure from within the church is a different one. It's called false teaching. So within the church, people um, uh, teaching doctrine and understanding of the gospel, which is false and which is leading people astray. That's another significant challenge that the church had to deal with in that time, indeed has to deal with now as well. And also, thirdly, um, another challenge was the, the temptation just to join in, the temptation to just do the same as what they would see around them in pagan society, um, other gods being worshipped in other temples, and they were being tempted uh, to get stuck into the same thing. So a similar background of challenges facing these seven churches. But what we see is these seven churches are kind of responding and reacting in different ways. And so often Jesus is writing to, to commend them for how well they're doing uh, in a challenging and pressuring situation. But in each case, he's often bringing a specific message that is sometimes challenging them and confronting with them something. So Ephesus, if you like, they're commended for some stuff, but Jesus confronts them because they've got cold. Their love for Jesus has got cold, and their love for one another uh, has got cold. A cold church in Ephesus. Uh, we then went on to look at the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna is commended 
These guys and girls, they're doing amazingly in the face of particularly hard persecution. And so Jesus doesn't really um, criticize them for anything. He just commends them and just says, well done. And his message to them is one of courage, is a commending and is of courage. We went on to look at the church in Pergamum, and Jesus commends them, but he also challenges them on compromise. Compromising with society around them. We've seen in Thyatira, um, a church in many ways was excellent and highly commendable, and yet Jesus comes to just challenge this issue of control. Someone in the church who's just trying to squeeze it and control it and manipulate it. Um, so there's an issue there of control. And now we've arrived at the church in Sardis. What is the main issue uh, confronting this church? What's the main issue that Jesus is drawing to their attention and challenging them on? It's this. The church in Sardis is complacent. There is complacency. We've heard about coldness, cold love. We've heard about compromise and control in these other churches. Now we come to Sardis and the issue is complacency or the issue is sleepiness. This is a church that is almost at the point of being dead. In fact, in verse 1, that's how Jesus addresses them. He says, you've got a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. However, it's not complete deadness in that he then goes on to say, wake up. So it's kind of this, this sleepiness that if it continues much longer, will be deadness. But there's still the possibility of being revived. Um, as a church, they're in a perilous situation, but Jesus... Um, speaks to them and he wants to remind them right at the outset, look, I hold the seven stars in my hand. The seven stars are these seven churches, these needy churches um, that are vulnerable to these different challenges in the world around them. And Jesus says, I hold you in my hands. I know what's going on. You're, you're in my hands. I'm holding the seven stars. And Jesus also says, I'm, I'm holding the seven spirits of God, which sounds really odd because surely there aren't seven different gods who are a spirit, but rather you might see in a footnote that another way of understanding this would be to say the sevenfold spirits. So Jesus holds, as it were, the Holy Spirit in his utter completeness. Everything and all the resources and all the activity and all the blessing of God is in the other hand. Needy church and the Spirit of God. He's saying, look, I know you. I know what's going on. I've got all heaven's resources to help you to overcome the challenges you're facing right now. That's the sense of Jesus, as he, uh, of this message, as he comes and he speaks to um, this church in Sardis. Nevertheless, they are in a perilous situation. Other churches have had some significant issues to address in order to get back on track. But the problem for Sardis is even greater because they don't actually realize there is a problem. Now, imagine it's, uh, well, hopefully it's now summer or um, we, we look forward to enjoying it. You're going on a summer holiday and let's say uh, you're going somewhere in the UK and you are going to uh, a nice self-catering cottage somewhere or a city apartment, maybe if you're more of a city dweller and you just want to be in a city, you know, a lovely place, right? You're, you're going there. However, you arrive at your accommodation, you open the door. You go in, and you realize, oh, hang on a minute, there's, there's a significant problem here because um, the windows are broken. This place is insecure. Um, well, that's just not going to work. 
or you go in and you realize there's no power. Um, so there's no way of cooking. There's no way of heating anything up. Um, there's no way of, of using any item that requires power, powerless. Another obvious problem. Uh, there could be other obvious problems. You walk in, you realize by the smell, oh, this, this place is damp. This place is, is moldy and musty. And the smell hits you as soon as you walk in the door. Or imagine another problem, and you, you open the cupboards, and you realize in the kitchen, there's an infestation of cockroaches. Which place would you most like to stay in? Uh, what would be your preferred problem? Now, those are grim. Every one of those, you, you arrive, you're, you're hoping for rest and relaxation, but you arrive there and you realize straight away there's a massive problem that has to be dealt with one way or another. Grim problems, but all obvious. I can think of a worse problem. And the worst problem would be this. Going along to uh, some holiday, holiday cottage and everything looks perfect. Everything looks fine. It's been recently decorated. It's been uh, kind of wonderfully renovated. Everything is there that you'd want to be there. It's really comfortable, but there is a problem. Something in that flat is churning out carbon monoxide. And the problem with carbon monoxide is if you breathe it in, it will kill you. But the additional problem is you can't smell it. So how are you supposed to know it's there? Think, oh, this is really nice. We're having a great time. I think, I think I'm just going to go to sleep. I think it's time to, it's time to relax. I'm just going to settle down. No, 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 no. Don't do that. In a sense, that's the problem that's confronting this church. It's getting sleepy, but it doesn't realize there's a problem. And so Jesus has to write in very stark terms. We read this message and it's uncomfortable. We don't really want to dwell on it too long because it sounds so stark. There's no encouragement seemingly in there at all. It's all just warning. The church in Sardis is in danger of falling asleep, um, which means that it's, spiritually speaking, it's in decline. One commentator writes this. The essence of church is not its programs, buildings, past achievements, reputation, institutional greatness, or formal doctrinal correctness, but its spiritual life. This life comes only through fellowship with the living Christ. And that kind of sums up where this church was at there's still the, the kind of outer shell that suggests life. There's programs. Maybe there's a building. There's past achievements. They've got a reputation. But actually, spiritually speaking, less and less and less connecting to Jesus. Sardis had been a good church. It's thought that Sardis was the first city in this region to respond to John preaching the gospel. John, who is writing this book and writing to these seven churches. This is a church then that had been long established. It's got history and real life had been there connecting with Jesus. One of the first places where spiritual life came to the region. But having been a good church, they had become a sleepy or complacent church, indifferent to the gospel. 
no longer really and truly relating with Jesus in a meaningful way. But they were falling asleep. They were perhaps just going through the motions and faking the emotions. So the sad lesson of history is that churches can fall asleep. And the sadder lesson of history is that churches that have fallen asleep or in danger of doing so can die. There might be an outer shell of programs and past spiritual success with a reputation for being vibrant. But now in the present, the church is no longer actually relating with Jesus. Outwardly, there's something. Inwardly, there's nothing. A good church can become a sleepy church, and a sleepy church can become a dead church. Now for us, it's important not just to, to look around the local scene or look around the nation and maybe think, oh yes, I can see, maybe there's a church over there that's growing sleepy. Oh, that church there, well, that, that died a long time ago. Um, and kind of read this message in, in that sense. No, for us, the important thing is to do is to, is to look at ourselves and think about ourselves. And consider two questions. And so we're going to consider two questions this, this morning. Firstly, how does a good church become a sleepy church? How does a good church, how does a good church like Sardis, which was once vibrant and a place of real life, how does a church become sleepy? Well, firstly, a church becomes sleepy by focusing on its reputation or on what other people think. So Jesus says to this church, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive. Literally, you have a name for being, being alive. You have a name for yourself. Uh, you have a name for being vibrant, but it doesn't really match up with where things are at here. Perhaps for this church, the temptation had been having developed a reputation of some sort. The focus came on what do we have to do to maintain that reputation? What do we have to do to maintain having a name for ourselves uh, and being thought of as godly and vibrant? If as individuals we think in those ways, our attention goes on appearing to be godly. We want to keep up appearances so our reputation stays intact. We want to appear to be caring and compassionate. We want to appear zealous for God. We want to seem like we're spiritual heavyweights to others. But in fact, when there's no chance of being seen, maybe we're just giving our preference uh, to the flesh. Uh, so I want people to think that I read the Bible, but actually I carve out more time for reading other stuff that maybe I wouldn't really want other people to be aware of or to know about. Now, you might think, oh, that's very subtle. It's a fine line. It's very serious. When that, when that attitude takes a grip, basically we're giving in to spirit of religion. Religion is all concerned with what's on the outside. Do I look good? Do I, do I look clean? Do I look godly? But we're not called to a spirit of religion. We're called to be in a, a relationship with God who is spirit. And in relationship, what matters is what's going on on the, on the inside. And so Jesus speaks to this church and he says in verse 2, I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Probably because, well, they are doing some stuff. They are doing some works. 
But what they're doing is just enough to gain other people's approval rather than actually gaining God's approval. So they're active, but God's not tricked. Their heart isn't really to lift up the name of Jesus. It's about lifting up their own name. You've got a name for yourselves, right? We must try and maintain that name. That's not the call of the church. The call of the church is to lift up the name of Jesus. And so when the disciples went to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, lift it up. Be your name. Let us join together and exalt the name of God. Let us exalt the name of Jesus. That's the call of the church. Now there are a couple of ways in which this this focus on reputation can start to try and, and, and tempt us and lure us. And one, as I was reflecting on, uh, on this passage, I can experience myself, I can be aware of myself, in doing what I'm doing right now. I'm opening up the Bible, we're spending time together looking at his word. I need to be aware of the temptation for myself of wanting you to think that I am clever. I have to put to death the temptation that is honestly there to preach, in a sense, to preach to the crowd. To say, well, if I say this, this, and this, and this, maybe people come up to me afterwards and say, well done. Oh, it's fine. It's like, and I, I could, and I pray, and I hope that I don't. But if I don't guard myself against that, I I could speak wanting that to happen. And I could make that the aim of what I do. And maybe the same can apply for any of us. In whichever way we serve, we're doing stuff. But is that coming out of our relationship with God and our desire to honor and please Him? Or is it coming from a desire to kind of win and gain the approval of other people? So it can come... It can come to us in in that way. It can come to us in another way, which is the flip side of having the privilege of being brought up in a Christian family. We're brought up in a Christian family. That was my experience anyway, at least. And that will be the case for some of you. And the temptation, therefore, can be, well, I I know mum and dad really believe this stuff. And, And therefore... I'm kind of familiar with what they believe. For an easy life, I'm going to try to give the impression that I believe the same. Um, it, it will be easier for me to, um, to, to talk the talk without necessarily fully kind of walking the walk. There's a, there's a temptation just to keep up, keep up the appearance. Whereas, again, we think... We're called not to keep up appearances. We're called to be in a, in a real living relationship with him. So there's potentially a temptation to focus on our reputation, on what do other people think. There's also a temptation to focus on comfort, where we can make that our main aim. What's interesting, reading through this passage on the church in Sardis is that in general, we've seen some of the challenges that are coming uh, the way of these churches. But Jesus doesn't draw attention to any of that when he speaks to Sardis. 
Um, in other places, he said in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, um, and have found them false. Well, that's what that church was up against. There was a real challenge. There was a real crisis because wicked people were trying to distort the truth. There's other stuff going on in other churches. Um, uh, I know your afflictions in chapter 2, verse 9, and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There's a real crisis. There's a real challenge going on in that church. We get to Sardis. Well, there's nothing there. It's very possible they're not experiencing any challenge or any crisis whatsoever. If that was the case, that would match up with the experience of that city as a whole. Sardis was known to be a place of, of easy wealth. It was well protected. And so in the city, there's a kind of complacent attitude. Well, let's just sit back and take it easy. There's no crisis, so there's nothing really to, to fight for. Now, we can think that's preferable But what can develop is a desire for comfort over and above other things, for nothing to upset a cozy atmosphere. And it can even be thought of as a hallmark of success, and we can appear kind of mature. You go along to the church in Thyatira and the church in Pergamum, it was obvious. There are problems here. Go along to Sardis, and I think probably what you would have found was very, very comfortable, very pleasant place to be. Very friendly, perhaps in an arm's length kind of way. Very easy, no obvious problems or challenges. Everyone nice and behaving well, but then they would do because they want to have a good reputation for themselves. So on the surface, everything is just easy. You wouldn't go along to Sardis and think, man, there's really big problems here. Kind of church as club easy. It's just nice, but underneath nothing. So thinking about suffering, thinking about these challenges, thinking about trouble that comes into the life of the church, on the one hand, it's completely undesirable, not something that we seek. But actually, when trouble comes, it can in part be God's way of bringing a benefit and blessing through it. Not that we seek it, but that in the midst of it, God wants to bless If life were perpetually peaceful, we could slip into complacency too. There's nothing to fight for or against. No conflicts, no challenges. No reminder of heaven and hell. No reminder of those spiritual realities confronting the world. And so no longer digging into the word of God to discover his voice amidst the storm. And even having a word to us this morning, when when trouble comes, God's saying, I'm with you. And actually what trouble can achieve is drawing us into deeper fellowship with Jesus. Because we realize in a storm, we really have to press into him. Other things don't matter so much. We are going to make sure we spend time with Jesus and in his word. Another commentator writes about the church in Sardis. Content with mediocrity, lacking both the enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance. It was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. It's just nice and easy. A sleepy church in a perilous situation. And Jesus says, if this continues, in effect, in verse 3, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. 
thieves are unexpected. They come at a time we don't anticipate. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to pay you an unexpected visit if you don't deal with this. In a sense, I'm going to, something's going to happen, whatever it is, that in effect brings judgment and kind of reveals there's an outer shell and there's nothing on the inside whatsoever. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. So it's pretty important that we consider a second question. The second question is this. We've considered how does a good church become a sleepy church. It's very important for us to consider how does a sleepy church become a good church. And we'll look at a few pointers within that. How does a sleepy church become a good church? And the first thing is, as Jesus speaks to this church in the beginning of verse 2, he says, wake up. You've got to wonder, how did the church in Sardis react to this message? It could have felt like a big slap on the face, really. A very rude awakening. But again, just think about it. If you're sleeping in a house and there's carbon monoxide coming out of the boiler or whatever, you don't want someone to come along who knows and just kind of, as you've just dropped off to sleep or are about to do so, just tap on the door. I'm terribly sorry uh, to interrupt. Um, I think there's a problem and that you need to wake up. I'll leave it with you. Okay, bye. See you in the morning. Um, that wouldn't be that friendly, really, would it? It wouldn't be that merciful or caring. What you need is someone to say, wake up! There's a problem, and you need to get out. It's a wake-up call. It's rude. It's kind of shocking. It's uncomfortable. It's very gracious. It's very kind of God. It's very kind of Jesus to kind of come into a situation and just grab attention. Because otherwise, this church could just continue to deceive themselves. Oh, we've got a reputation for being alive. Well, that's all that matters. We're doing some stuff. Look, we're, we're, we're doing some works. And, and people are saying encouraging things about us. Phew, we're okay. Jesus says, no, wake up. Another way those words could be understood is this. Be watchful. Wake up and be watching. Kind of be on your guard. Be vigilant. Be watching. And that was very relevant um, in this city because it's thought the city of Sardis was in a very strong position. They had these big walls. They're very well protected. And so what they thought was nothing, no one will be able to invade. No one's going to be able to get into our strong fortress. And so Sardis was never captured by a big full frontal attack. However, on two occasions, it was captured by stealth at night. When people would sneak in somehow to the city, those who were supposed to be on guard were sleeping, and therefore they could then just open the gates and take it captive. And that happened on two occasions, perhaps because they hadn't woken up. They weren't being watchful. And so it's important for us in our faith to always be on our guard. There are hostile forces that want to defeat the church, but our our enemy is not always kind of prowling around in super obvious mode, ready to launch an obvious full frontal attack. 
um, like a roaring lion about to pounce. Often he will seek more stealthy methods to draw us away from Jesus. Maybe when it's dark. Maybe when no one's looking. Maybe, maybe when you can't get to sleep at night. And you can just think, I'll just, I'll just go and turn the telly on. I know it's half past midnight. I'm sure browsing the channels at this time of day will be absolutely fine. Who are we trying to kid? Just, oh, it's okay. No one's, no one's looking. I, I, I'm just going to surf the net on my smartphone. And, uh, well, actually, no one else is looking. And maybe it's dark. And no one else can see. You know, smartphones are amazing. They're so handy. that you can kind of have the Bible right there. Quickly go anywhere on it. Unfortunately, it's very quick and easy to look at other stuff. And sometimes just subtly and stealthily, the enemy's just coming in. Just to say, go on, why don't you compromise in these ways? It's subtle and it's deceiving. And so we need to be on our guard. The enemy is wanting to tempt us and deceive us and lure us into pagan pleasures. And so in Sardis, there were people who were, as it were, getting their clothes soiled. We read um, in verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. In other words, there are some people who have, or the majority have. What does that mean, soiling one's clothes? It's, it's talking about just getting defiled, getting grubby, spiritually speaking, because we're just being drawn into what the, what the world regards as fine and okay. So think about this. If, if, if the enemy wanted to trip you up or make you spiritually sleepy, how would he do it? How would he go about it? Is it a smartphone? Is it a certain type of entertainment? What, what kind of pagan pleasures would he try to lure you into? And are you on your guard, ready to resist and stand firm, calling on God to help? Or are you already yawning? Is it already kind of washing over you? In which case you need to hear that message. Wake up! So second, how does a, a sleepy church become good? It needs to wake up. also needs to remember. Remember what you have received and heard, we hear in verse 3. Surely here, Jesus is saying, look, remember and always keep in your mind the gospel of my grace that you have received that you've heard and received. Always keep it in mind. Don't let it drop from your thinking. And uh, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians. He writes to that church, and in chapter 15, and verse, uh, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Paul writes this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He's saying, look, remember this. It's of first importance. There there are other things that are important. But this is the main thing. This is really important. And we've seen a kind of 
a demonstration of it this morning. As Ed got baptized, he, he kind of got buried under the water and then he got brought back out again. Jesus died. He died on the cross to take our sin upon his shoulders, to take our punishment upon himself. So that while once we were completely objects of God's wrath, because God loves us, he didn't want to leave us in that perilous situation to experience an eternity without him and without any good thing in life forever. God wanted to rescue us from that, so he sent Jesus. And Jesus willingly went to the cross to die, to take upon himself all the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin, that we could be brought into now perfect relationship, a wonderful relationship with Jesus forever. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Ed went under the water. He came back out. It's like a, a picture, an image. One life has ended and a new life has begun, all by God's grace. So Paul writes to that church and he says, look, what well, I passed on to you something that was of first importance. And Jesus is saying to this church, remember therefore what you've received and heard. It's like, here's something so important that you don't move on from it. You don't kind of think, ah, oh, I, I got saved. I kind of understood the gospel. I heard about Jesus dying on the cross. And, uh, and now, that's boring. And I want to get more involved in something else. No, Jesus writes. Now this, this really is all it's to do with. Everything is to do with this. I don't know if any of you have come across a guy called C.J. Mahaney, a guy who leads church in uh, the U.S., and he's write, written a small book called The Cross-Centered Life, a small book, but it ca- kind of packs a wonderful punch. And uh, he writes this in a chapter that's entitled, What's Your Life Centered On? He says, she has a, a, a story, an image. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. It didn't talk, so the next day, she returned it to the pet store. He needs a ladder, she was told. She bought a ladder. But another day passed and the parrot still didn't say a word. How about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a miniature plastic tree. The next day, a shiny parrot toy. On Sunday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. She had the parrot cage in her hand and tears in her eyes. Her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the store owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at the pet store? (laughs) C.J. Mahaney goes on to write, many good causes and activities can occupy a Christian's time and attention, but just as no amount of parrot cage amenities can make up for a lack of of parrot food, nothing can replace the gospel in a Christian's life. Without it, our souls will become like Alice's pet, starving in a crowded cage. There's lots of stuff going on. There's activity. And God's saying, no, you're forgetting something. You're forgetting the very main thing, the thing that's of first importance. And I recently, I was just with a, in a small group context and with others, we just spent a little bit of time sharing our testimonies, sharing our, our life stories, basically. But within that, it was kind of sharing how we came to faith, how Jesus personally came and rescued us. And I say, it was just so 
wonderfully encouraging. We're just remembering again what we've received, what we've heard and what we've received. This wonderful good news that Jesus stepped down to rescue us. It's just so encouraging, looking at God's word and also kind of just reminding ourselves, yeah, actually, this is how God got hold of my life. It wasn't, it wasn't me choosing him. It was him stepping into my life and choosing me, grabbing my attention and saving me, bringing me to that point where I just said, oh, God, the way I've been living my life is a mess. Lord, forgive me everything that I've been doing that is in rebellion to you. Lord, I see your wonderful grace, and I want to receive your salvation. Just so encouraging. But my, my questions again, just to suggest this. Well, what, have, what have you heard? Have you heard of a God of love who cares for you? Have you heard of a Savior who came to die in your place? Have you heard the gospel? Have you heard that good news? Have you heard that you need a Savior? That you need to give your life to him? That he's come to forgive you of everything that we can't clean ourselves up from. We need someone else to do it. He's done it for us. But have you heard that? Also, what have you received? Perhaps you have heard the gospel quite a lot. Perhaps you're very familiar. Yes, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. I'm kind of familiar with the facts. I've grown up in a Christian family. I've grown up in a Christian household. I, even if I'd wanted to, I couldn't have escaped this stuff from day one, pretty much. Well, have you received it? Or is it just information? Is it just information and now you're trying to keep up an outer shell of kind of appearing to be a Christian? Have you received it? Because it's absolutely essential that we do. Now for this church in Sardis, the situation doesn't look wonderful. This is not this is not a great situation for, the, for a church to be in. They are almost at the point of falling asleep altogether, where Christianity has become entirely nominal, just something that they do rather than something that's in them. It's not a great situation, but it's not a hopeless situation either. There is still the chance of being revived, and that's why Jesus so graciously, so, so lovingly is speaking to them now. Sometimes we can think of personal sin or problems in the church as simply too difficult, or maybe they've just lasted too long to be overcome for us to do anything about. In our own minds, we can perhaps just remain helpless victims to bad habits or slaves to negative thinking or unholy behavior of just one sort or another. I, I just can't help it, or I've always been like this, or don't expect me to change. But Jesus speaks to this church in Sardis because it is not too late. That's what his grace is like. There's this, there is this opportunity. And the opportunity comes to this church in Sardis. Where it's relevant for us, it comes to us as well. It's not too late. It's not a hopeless situation. He said right at the outset, look, I, I have you in my hand. I know everything. I have you in my hand. And also, I have the fullness of my Holy Spirit and all heaven's resources in my other hand, as it were, as well. Why don't you allow me to bring that together? That you might be kind of restored 
and revived. Reading the Word of God. It's no longer about kind of ticking something off a list. It's, this is a way. I enjoy spending time with my Savior. And he reveals truth to me. Walking with him. So at the end, he points us forward to some great incentives, some great promises for us for when we overcome. Talks about walking with Jesus, being dressed in white, knowing with certainty that our names are written in his book of life, the kind of the register book of heaven. Knowing that whatever our reputation was on the earth, whatever people have thought of us, In heaven, Jesus is going to acknowledge our name to the Father and the angels. So looking forward to enjoying real relationship with Jesus forever and also looking forward in the here and now to walking with him. It's not about outward activity, programs, a building, institutional greatness. It's not about having a name for ourselves. It's not about having a reputation It's not about how well thought of we are. It's about walking with Jesus, enjoying relationship with him. But it leaves us with that question. We want to be sure it's definitely worth waking up for. We don't just want to kind of hear a message and then just turn over and go back to sleep. Jesus says, wake up for us. Is it time to wake up? Or at least, is it time to remind ourselves, I do actually need to be on my guard. I do actually need to make sure I'm not letting kind of pagan pleasures or maybe even noble causes become the center of my life. Is the center of my life my relationship with my wonderful God? Could be that it's time to wake up to be watchful. It could be that it's time to receive something that you're familiar with hearing about, but you've never actually taken. A gift, as it were, never actually unwrapped for oneself. Yeah, I I kind of know the lingo. I, I know the Christian message. I know the information. I know the facts. But do you know the reality? Do you know what it is to walk with Jesus. If not, then receive it. Take hold of it. Get hold of it. And receive the the great relationship that God has got planned for you. It's not too late. Jesus comes graciously to his church because he wants to bless her and encourage her and revive her. Let's pray together.